0: So Simon Sharma, it's brilliant to see you again. Fantastic to have you on 20 Questions with. There's awesome. so much to get through. Let's start by talking about the history of Now. This is a big Thanks. BBC series. It's aired, but it's still on the BBC iPlayer. It's going to be available on iPlayer for almost a year, so people have no excuse at all. Talk to us about it, about how... because per- I I went to the to the launch of it, and it's a, it's a very personal film right. isn't it because this is about the history in a way of your lifetime and, and the history as seen by you in part through your own eyes mm. well I suppose actually when you get you know
1: I'm I'm going to have my Christ what is it 78th birthday coming up quite soon and um, when, when you get to be um, well, I, I love the phrase that um, Gore Vidal used actually uh, the, he, he called this particular part of life the springtime of salinity um, which I rather love But when you get to be kind of that old, you're you're assailed immediately by a fear of not being able to say what really needs to be said at the moment in history. And also, you know, who's going to be brave enough to tell you when you've gone completely gaga or you actually can't put a sentence together? No one except possibly my wife. You know, so so there is this sort of sense of which, which you also have to correct of wanting to, you know, say something with with a capital S, but you don't want it to be so pompous and so grandiose and, you know, a kind of televised last will and testament that is instantly ridiculous and the kind of musings of pompous old man, really. But I I, I mean, I have been thinking for quite a while, as I think you know, that um, even granted that kind of old people are prone to say, we're in terrible trouble. It was. Always, I don't think it was all necessarily better when I was growing up, but we're in terrible trouble now. I think objectively, we, the world, are in terrible trouble now. You know, we have these existential crisis of the um, the, the disastrous degradation of our planetary ecosystem, which in turn had one of the knock-on effects is for me undoubtedly um, the, the relatively greater ease by which pandemics spread, cause a different crisis. And then we have, you know, crisis just simply of survival um, for a very large part of the world's population that generates migration, however much various politicians would want to wish it away. So, you know, when you get this kind of triple whammy, if there is such a thing, it would be really bizarre, actually, if as a kind of working historian stiff, you looked in the opposite direction. So how really to kind of grapple with those things and, and yet make it, as I say, not sound like a kind of ominous sermon. So it kind of, it and the, the sense in which, you know, a lot of the crises we're in really were kind of birthed in the years after the war when we could deal with them. That kind of nudged my, col- my brilliant colleagues at Oxford Films and in the BBC to say, well, why not map it against the many years of your life but so you know you how... said than done the danger is of horrible narcissistic
0: self-indulgence you know maybe I didn't escape it who knows no no you did escape it but how do you tell us how you tell the history of now as compared say to the history of the French revolution one of the things for which you're most famous
1: well, archive—you know—television and mo- a movie archive are, and still photography. I mean, um, you, you don't have the trouble of, um, don't have the problem of, th- of thinking, well, what did Robespierre sound like?
0: You know, really. But so, I mean, in so, terms of perspective, in terms of perspective, because you are telling the history, okay, of the last however well, many decades.
1: No, well, but... a very good
0: map-like problem, actually, because when I did write the history of the French Revolution
1: and citizens. There, I actually wanted to almost will myself into the position of somebody rather apolitical who was caught up in the whirlwind of politics. So actually, I did almost, I mean, I used to dream that, you know, wake up in the middle of the night and wonder, where is my wig and my horse? you know, it's exactly true, and um, so you it's a sort of silly psycho game you play with yourself, but I did, you know, a very great historian philosopher called H.E. Collingwood in Oxford (coughs) in the 1930s talked about history, historical writing, as a form of reenactment. Again, you mustn't Fall into the ridiculous delusion that you really know how people, you know, spoke, cried, smelled, and so on. You, you can't ever know that there is a kind of broken bridge to the past, but you can go a long way away. So in that sense, you know, the way I've kind of always operated telling historical stories, and the way I was tr- kind of trying to tell my own, uh, as I say, you know, I- inside the grid of historical events. Was not so different to a working principle. I mean, it was because, as I say at the very beginning of the first episode, you know, because I think I was I was actually born during a very one of the very last V two rocket raids on London. There was this extraordinary sense, and remember, as you can't possibly, the kind of sooty, broken, lung-choking quality of what the smashed-up city in East End was like when I was a child, um, you know, you're already immediately kind of plugged into that, that world and that time. So I wanted to try and get that across.
0: What did telling the history of now teach you or remind you about your own life? What in the sort of the retelling of this story to yourself, did you find out? Yeah, another very good question. I think I relived, you know, the, the,
1: Cambridge Union scene with James Baldwin and William Buckley, whereas that is very good in the second film, it's a very good case in point. What I rel- lived was how passionately engaged in politics and, you know, historical ethics, you might say, without being, again, too, too sententious. We all were, and we all were that way, because around the late 1950s, and it started with kind of culture in britain which i don't talk about but it i have a mind one day to make a film about up. it started with um, beyond the fringe and it started with the establishment it started with the kind of um, beginning of private eye and so on there was this kind of cracking of the ice of um, british political deference in a really really big way so we all thought really that we ultimately however hard the fights were going to be we were basically on a highway to a better world wherever you looked and you know much of the story of of my own life onwards and the decades were followed were to say you know that it didn't turn out the way we hoped more we wished but the kind of third position is
0: right it all has to be done again so let's do it again and how does that make you feel as someone who's you know, only a couple of years away, as you say, from turning eighty? How yeah. does that make you feel that that perhaps battles that you thought, if not were, had been won, were at least moving in the right direction? Have seemed to be resurfacing in quite ugly form in recent years. Do, do, how, how does that make you sort of sum things up to yourself? It's it's not just that we don't want to kind of necessarily die without knowing the answer, because there will never will be one answer, because the, the world we hope will go on for a very long time. But it's it's the idea that we might die, and any of us could be hit by a bus tomorrow. The idea that we might die with things edging in the wrong direction. Um, I, I'm uh,
1: reconciled to that, really. Um, i I mean it another very good question, so I mean one's tempted to say, well, you know, thus it has always been kind of high minded ideals, hit a hit a blank wall um i mean if you, one remembers the kind of first twenty or thirty years after um, you know, after the end of the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars, I mean, talk about a kind of monstrous overcorrection into the world of Metternich and a world of extreme reaction. That in turn birthed 1848, the Springtime of the Revolution, which in turn got kind of sat on. So, you know, if you're any kind of historian, this is this is not wholly a surprise. I think the extra little smidgen of upsetness which I feel is that the problems we have now are so existential. Above all, above all climate change and the loss of species and so on. On the other hand, I'm not a fatalist. You know me, I'm a sort of chronic, sort of glass-half-full person. There are certain issues I accept will never be resolved. In fact, seem further and further away from being resolved um, than ever. The biggest one for me emotionally and personally is Israel-Palestine, which is becoming more and more tormented and torturous and so on so I mean I remember a friend of mine a long time ago 20 30 years ago maybe saying well I think I'm uh, and he's younger than me said I don't think I'm going to see a two-state peaceful solution in my lifetime. I said, yes, you will, you will, you will. Now, there's absolutely no question that I won't. I mean, I will check out before really knowing whether we have definitively been able to arrest climate change and, you know, throw this whole catastrophic propulsion into collective self-destruction, in, into reverse. I, I The, the, the final thing to say about that is, of course, again, Thus, it has always been. I mean, the good news is that, you know, there's mass motivation among the young and um, what was really very interesting about the midterm elections to. This is not quite as much of an outrageous progression, I hope, as it seems the midterm elections in the United States it's a record percentage of young voters, so the opposite, because. Whatever reason, a lot of it had to do with the overthrow of of Roe versus Wade, which was a motivation not just of young women, but of all kinds of women of all ages and young men as well. And um, you know, that's
0: that's will I die happy? Knowing that's the case, no, but I'll die happier. You come down emphatically, of course, in the film against Putin, and you you come you you come down heavily heavily yeah, against 100%. Trump. Heavily, say again? <laughs> really laughing, because, but there are people who are Putin enthusiasts in this country, in the United States. It's extraordinary. Sorry, go on. But more on. interestingly, you come down heavily against Trump, as I would. But yeah, how do we deal with the fact? And and this is still a tension and it's a tension in the way that news organisations perhaps cover it. How do we deal with the fact that Trump and what he stands for, which is against much of what you stand for, is the creation of a democratic process? It's almost a contradiction in terms, in my view. What's your view on that and how we address that?
1: Well, it was dealt with uh, rather brilliantly. And I must say, you know, I'm among uh, many, as it were, high-minded, wet, centrist liberals who who hadn't quite expected how catastrophically self-defeating the hardcore Trumpists would be during the midterms. You know, that was a big surprise. a big surprise to everybody. So that, you know, the issue always is, as it was for other authoritarian regimes, Italian fascists and Nazis and so on, the issue is always is... uh, through democratic means, can actually those who are enemies of democracy convert um, their hardcore minority or, you know, coercively make a democratic, de- the democratic guardrails fall down? And so far, touch wood, that absolutely happened. There'll be 30% of the country who, you know, were... Were Trump tomorrow to say the way forward for America is for every American to eat a disemboweled goat on Tuesdays and Fridays, we'll say, absolutely, we're heading for the goat herd. You know, that's just never going to change, really. But it doesn't matter, providing that we don't surrender to some sort of quasi military onslaught, that's what January 6th was about. And that's what, you know, someone who I admire enormously while hating every other principle she stands for, that's what Liz Cheney is about really, and Adam Kinsinger and others. They did see fundamentally that there was a constitutional issue. And I think that, you know, the Republican Party is going through a very interesting moment right now, uh, where a lot of the new election people are, a a serious number of them are still election verdict deniers. Uh, On the other hand, it's quite clear for the majority of the voting Republican United States, they do not want to hear any more from Donald Trump. About how the election was stolen. There's no question about that.
0: You've spent decades of your life, haven't you, sort of straddling the Atlantic, moving between America and the UK. And I wonder whether you'll only have a British passport actually. But I wonder whether forty-year-old you... green card, which <laughs> <laughs> is sort of embarrassing. Do we in Britain influence America in any way, or is the influence only one one way? Does it only come from America to Britain? i actually think unfortunately
1: and i wish it were otherwise in a way um I, I think the i think your first version is true that that we don't really accept you know i mean the, the dispiriting thing um and i should be very careful about this actually because I, i'm thinking about television as one does um you know thinking about the downturn effect really so the most sort of you know walk down memory lane people in nice dresses and so on maggie smith going over the top and, you know, kind of warbling contralto that that you know eaten up by millions and millions of people because in a way it's sort of it's the side of Britain. Which is unthreatening, really. I mean, I would love to see something like Spitting Image, which will never happen in American television. (laughs) I mean, it may never happen in Britain again, in quite the way it did. Uh, But this sort of the other side of us, you know, the ferocious, satirical, take no prisoners. I mean, every so often... One or two of us Brits have come along. I absolutely do not claim this myself, but I'm thinking of my much beloved and, and long-lost friend, Christopher Hitchens, you know, who actually was, you know, devoted to American life, but was actually ferocious, take-no-prisoners critic of much of it, not all of it. So he Christopher did, definitely did make a difference, I think, partly because he couldn't be pigeonholed into left, right, or centre. So this kind of, you know tough polemical side of British life I think occasionally makes
0: an impact but by and large it really is a one-way street I eh? What's been the best bit about living in America for much of your life as I say on and off what has really excited you about that country because in the UK we often hear about negative stuff in the US but actually in so many ways it is still a wonderful place isn't it? it's a wonderful country in many ways yeah i think i think it's incomparably not incomparably because i'm not
1: saying british writing that, but it's it's tremendously you know every time you think really a particular generation of writers is sealed in some sort of you know um, magnificent canon the the philip roths and the saul bellows and and so on you know another generation of startlingly brilliant talent comes along and plays with you know um Various different kinds of um, ways of you know working with English that are affected by other cultures too. So you know that that sort of constant refreshment is really a kind of wonderful thing. I I think it's really important. One reason I went to America in the first place in the nineteen eighties was because you know my instincts have been and my teaching life has been a kind of weird hybrid of art history history and a little bit of social anthropology. That was that was at the heart of the, you know the embarrassment of Richards and also of landscape and memory. So there was a tremendous um, hospitality to doing that. I mean, there was an extraordinary moment when I was visiting Harvard for a term in 1979, I think before I left. and the chairman of the department well. said to me something I'd never heard said in the faculties of history at Cambridge and Oxford. Now what is it you would like to teach? You know, I think the first talk, first course I taught at Harvard was called Art and Politics in France and Britain, and it was between the kind of middle of the eighteenth century and the middle of the nineteenth century. So that was something I, I actually tried to do at Oxford, and people simply kind of raised their eyebrows as though I, you know, said something unpleasant. I mean, it was it was an impossible
0: thing to do. So, so this, so, so, so right so, from the start in that Harvard, you were able to do what you wanted. Yeah, absolutely you know providing you put in the hours and you saw the students and you did
1: did your job but you but the content of what you did there was a big kind of you know voting confidence that you would know best and you would you know it makes a lot of sense to teach what actually
0: you know you're enthusiastic about. I remember as a, a sort of history student or a history pupil at school being absolutely gripped by the Cuban Missile Crisis and I just found the way it was taught and learning about it and and something that had been relatively recent that my parents had gone through that you'd gone through I just found it maybe exciting it's not the right word because of course it was terrifying for those who lived through it but it was just an extraordinary thing to to study what one area of history if you're now only allowed to teach one area of history but I I want to know where your deepest passion is where your deepest interest
1: uh, you know um, whatever happens to really catch my attention. And um, at the moment,
0: I'm so not a kind of top 10 person. Okay, I'm I'm going to therefore not count that as a question. Your answer will be kept. So I asked you about the influence of America and Britain, which way around that was. What about the influence of the way you think about history, on the way you think about today and the way that you think about today and the political environment today, the political issues of today, the way that might impact on you as a historian, do you kind of feed do those interests in the past and in the present feed off each other in some sort of symbiotic way, make you a better historian, make you more more of an informed observer or analyst of what's going on today
1: well, I think I've always felt i've never you know um there, there, there's there's a long kind of debate in history about saying never uh, it's called. When I was growing up intellectually in the 1960s, called presentism, which has said the worst thing you can do is to project your own contemporary preoccupations onto the Reformation or something. I mean, I never quite, and I can understand the danger of that. Then history just becomes a kind of self reflecting mirror, doesn't it? Um, and you want to respect the independent with us, the sort of alien world of the past, the past foreign country. On the other hand, my deepest instincts have been. Sort of like with Benedetto Croce, the Italian historian, that all history ultimately is contemporary history, and you're never really going to escape your own preoccupations, your prejudices, and the you know the effect that the crucial issues of the time have. So I've kind of embraced that in a way. You don't want to do it too crudely, of course, actually, but um, I've never been kind of embarrassed about taking a particular moment. I mean, the very first book I wrote about the French and the Dutch at the end of the 18th century called Patriots and Liberators um, was really about what the French in the name of liberty did to this small, proud, rather broken, broken Dutch Republic. Um, And it was very influenced by um, something that actually is part of the history of now. You know, the feeling I had when the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact crushed the Prague Spring in the name of the solidarity of international working class you know so there's the sort of sense of bad faith about that so a lot of that sense of disgust and indignation went into that book but I mean it's not spelled out in that way but it
0: did did color it so I've, I've always felt that's no bad thing Has your work as a TV historian having to communicate with so many people so directly helped you as a writer of history?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, they are two different radically, possibly incommensurably different, you know, modes of of doing the same job. I think television is a good... I mean, you know, people say the opposite about it, that it's a sort of pass to, you know gross self-indulgence or something or you know the terrible word dumbing down i never felt that at all i felt it was extremely good and i've been very lucky to work with very very clever um thoughtful complicated directors and producers so from you know doing history of britain on i've always felt there was an obligation to sort of make um to bring people into an argument into questions through storytelling that is sort of what you do in writing you know it's, but there's all and there's technically and formally it was a complication between uh, does the argument really drown the storytelling or does the storytelling make the argument too anecdotal and too much like kind of writing a novel so those they're the same thing but it it happens in a very compelling direct way on television Um, and I can all sorts of moments in history of Britain where what the argument was was really really very important for example exactly how horrific was Cromwell's campaign in Ireland Um, and it's a kind of nice point of catastrophe but did he murder some mass murder civilians as well as prisoners the evidence I said it's very carefully certainly at the time when I was working on it was that it was bad enough he was quite happy to murder prisoners um, but didn't actually set about you know doing a kind of SS Einsatzgruppen thing on the Irish. So that that aside, the point I want to make is that um, I felt very obliged to set out that argument in the middle of the stories, and that that's kind of what you do in writing books. What you can do in a book, though, which you can't really do on television, don't quite have that indulgence. You know, so you have you can you can write the atmospherics of a place or a moment or a person much more expansively and richly than you can ever do
0: in television. You talked about the risks of projecting yourself or your ego or your view of the world onto history. But how do you, as a historian, tell the story of bygone ages and eras where where there were different sets of values? How do you manage to communicate what was going on there without, as it were, overly moralizing or perhaps you do need to moralize? No, I don't think it's a matter of moralism, it's a matter of imagination. I mean, you, what you do
1: is actually immerse yourself, you know, maximum immersion. In some time, Macaulay was actually very interesting about this. In an essay he wrote when he was all of 25 years old, called On History, when he was actually thinking about how people held their nose at Walter Scott's novels. And he said quite correctly that whatever you think about Walter Scott's novels, and he rather liked them, unsurprisingly, I don't particularly, but Scott did an extraordinary amount of research into clothes, food, furniture. He, he remembered correctly Scott going to find uh, uh, aged people who still knew the music of old Scottish ballads and Borderland ballads, songs and so on um i mean he could have granted robert burns who'd collected them partly but but that's that's exactly right that what you do is if you're you know when you're writing whether it's the french revolution or the dutch in the 17th century you really absolutely kind of always drown yourself in the things which are unlike the world you simon happen to be living in at the moment so you know you have a very strong tactile material sense of what a day in Amsterdam in 1650 would be like. And then you're in a position to kind of translate it for modern readers and sensibilities. In that sense, you're not, you're not very different from really great historical fiction writers who are, oh. you know, Lampedusa and Margaret Yorsenar and people like that.
0: Why does history matter, Simon?
1: Because it's where we come from. And, you know, you can't do better than Cicero who said, um, those who, uh, you know, who know no history are in the condition of very small children, not knowing where they've come from nor whither they will go. How big a part of you is being a Jew? Oh, huge, yeah. I mean, it's never not been. At, um, at four years old, I was dressed up as Mr. Shabbos um, in, in a little kind of miniature dicky bow tie with, um, with um, a girl who was called Mrs. Shabbos. And we walked down, walked through the synagogue at South End at Sea at Alexandra Road. I learned Hebrew when I was five. My Hebrew is sort of not not now, but at then it was probably better than my English. So it's kind of a fundamental part of my identity, really. How would you look back now? How do you look back now at your childhood? Oh, I was very lucky, really. I mean, I had I had this childhood, you know, in in the mud and sea of, um, of uh, Chalkwell and Leon C. and South End. And I liked being alone. I used to kind of wander off. And, you know, there were no parents didn't really kind of assume you'd come toddling back with my bucket and spade, a little bit of crabs that I had put in my sister's bath. I was a little bastard about that kind of thing. So I, I was very, I was a very happy small child. And then when my father um, went spectacularly broke, as he was inclined to do, we lost our kind of grand house in Essex and moved into London, so that was just fine by me. You know, um, Essex was replaced by Golders Green in the 1950s. So I, that part of my life was spent smoking on the tops of illegally on the tops of London buses. Only, only I was too young to do the smoking. Not that you couldn't smoke on the tops of buses. So I, I you know, a lot of my life, and I think a lot of my friends, my generation would say we had incredible luck. In the 60s, though academic jobs, galore, new universities are being founded. It was it was it was much easier to have a life in academia and also kind of moonlight and journalism a bit, which I which I always did. So, you know, that that was a piece of great good fortune.
0: Okay. So luck and good fortune aside, looking at yourself and your immense success, how much oh. of that is down to hard work? How much of that is down to intelligence? How much of that is down to a curiosity, a desire to read and to, to find out things? How how much of that is down to something else, like an ability to manage your time or to, or, or to, no, to, to juggle uh, projects?
1: Well, I suppose I do do that. I have no idea how I do it. A lot of coffee, a lot of incredibly great help I get but I, I think the one thing missing from the list which is crucial and again this piece of luck that some of us had I had a you know professor at Cambridge called J.H. um, who'd written an incredible best-selling penguin history of England in the 18th century and his view which is minority view in Cambridge in the early 60s was that archival research the absolutely tough rock face work of archival research and it's archival research through which you, you know, you mingle with the voices of the dead is absolutely crucial. You can't possibly be a historian without it. Archival research and popular history writing um, nourished each other and you you were incomplete if you you let one or the other go. So for example, when I was an undergraduate, Plum actually, um, amazingly, he passed on to me a book review commission that he'd been given for the, you know, then super multi-million popular magazine called the Saturday Evening Post. You know, that was incredible. I can't remember what it was of. I think it was I Yes and I Do. It was a book about the Battle of Waterloo. And I loved doing it. So, you know, it was a kind of practical exercise that you necessarily had to have these two This was the, this was two sides of your intellectual personality working in tandem. And this was an argument, again, that had been going on for a very long time When history was founded as a professional discipline in the late 19th century in Oxford and Cambridge uh, and elsewhere too, um, particularly Bishop Stubbs, who was a great historian in his way, who founded the English Historical Review, made the point that actually... The worst thing that could happen to an historian would be to entertain the public or to kind of grip the public. That that it was a kind of zero sum game between popular writing. Macaulay again was the nose holding example, or Jules Michelet in 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 France. Michelet is an ext- he's a great lodestar for me in lots of ways, because he was simultaneously an extraordinary popular writer of history about the French Revolution but about the French Middle Ages too and he was the first archivist of the Archive National, set up during the Second Republic in 1848. So these two sides of the historical personality in, in my view and I've certainly I, I've always felt that have actually you know wired together to sort of do the job
0: as well as the history you've done for the BBC, you've done signature work on art. Mm. Could you describe to us the pleasure that art gives to you? I mean, I think you even described to me once in in a previous interview a while ago that you yourself had a Rembrandt face or a Rembrandt nose, perhaps, but art has been central to your life, hasn't it? Yeah, the Rembrandt Nose Things, um, a really lovely friend of mine said that my book called Rembrandt's
1: Nose, it should have been called Rembrandt's Nose, because as, during the very long period I was writing it, <laughs> my nose grew to be more like his by some kind of magic transference. Really, I would love to, that to be true. but. Um, uh, yeah no art's been very important to me you know since I was a child again again my my mother and father were very they were massive kind of gallery goers and we uh, the gold is green period you know so when I was there from the age of uh, eight or nine I can't remember exactly when uh, but I do remember going to Kenwood and looking at that self-portrait with my dad and just standing in front of it and you know, feeling is extraordinary, self-interrogating energy, and um, art gives you another way of feeling alive, really, feeling what it's like to be human, or being human in a landscape, you know, you get another pair of eyes, but they're not just eyes that optically see, it's a sort of route to extraordinary realms of understanding. So it's very profound business for me. And I was very lucky, you know, I was the art critic of the New Yorker for a few years, really hired by by Tina Brown. And um, that was wonderful because I had really had to be, you know, quick on my feet, kind of deliver a copy to the New Yorker every single week. For And I got to choose which shows I covered, which was
0: amazing. We've spoken about how perhaps politically the the, the and maybe socially e- e- dangerous echoes of the past are being witnessed now. Looking back over your life so far, what do you think are the really big, significant changes? I'm not going to say the most big because, of course, you're not a top 10 person, as you said. But look at something like the Internet. Look at the fact that that's enabling us to do what we're doing now. I'm in London. You're in New York. And it's been enabled many more important things than this interview to go ahead What are the most fundamental, do you think, changes that have happened in your lifetime?
1: Oh, boy. Well, that is certainly one of them. It's true. And, I mean, again, to be rather parochial about it, I mean, um, just before we got to start speaking together, a whole bunch of archival material, um, which which I need to work on, was sent to me from very far away in an archive in Jerusalem. And um, that is an extraordinary thing, really. So, you know, the internet has enabled really primary source research to happen. Again, I have mixed feelings about it. I'm rather romantic about it. So that's why I'm going to Jerusalem. Actually sort of hands-on, immediate material con- connection wow. with, with letters and such like. Um, so slightly mixed feelings about that. But there's no doubt, you know. I, I guess it's, you know, um, rather in the way uh, and Enlai, you know, is said, it's now thought to be an apocryphal story, but it's at the front of citizens, was asked, um, you know, what the effect of the French Revolution on the world was. And he said in the 1950s, it's too soon to tell. And I think that's probably true of the internet as well. But obviously this is an enormous, all-encompassing thing. I mean, what's, I think, sort of obviously depressing about the internet is that we all thought somehow it would make the transmission of lies and madness and paranoia and conspiracy theories harder really to deliver whereas in fact it's it's been a great facilitator we're still having that debate obviously you know the so-called free speech absolutists like Elon Musk think that however deranged and defamatory and toxically dangerous um, a, a, a fiction can be in the name of free speech it should be allowed to flourish and and breed on the internet so that's not great um the other great change of course again is a kind of sad story is simply about that you know we're now about to have nearly 8 billion population in the world um the result of that combined with the growing inequities of the rich and poor parts of the world um is the most existential question of all i mean in in the, in the book i'm writing now begins with a sentence in the end all history is natural history and that, i believe that so we had an incredible crossroads about that that's why i did the sequence i did at the very end of the history of now so tell us about this new book ah uh, the book is the book is yeah um it's, it's called Foreign Bodies, and it's really about vaccines and vaccinators. And it wasn't what I set out to do. I was, I was writing a book, long promised, about the culture of nationalism, which has been a preoccupation of mine forever, really. But what I wanted to do was write a book about the parts that are often not written about, like music and sport um, and the kind of commemoration of distorted myths. I spent a little time in Kosovo, got very interested in... Slobodan Milosevic's use or misuse of the 600th anniversary of the Battle of Kosovo as a way of igniting Serbian ultra-nationalism in in the late 1980s. So this was a book that, you know, I may may not write, but I was sort of just... When lockdown happened, you know, I think it happened to a lot of my friends and fellow writers, you took a look at yourself and what you were doing, and it just all felt... I kind of know that already. I wanted to learn something new, and I, but I was thinking, um, okay, there must have been one uh, one moment really when nationalism. And populism had to give way to international collaboration. That surely would be when we were all swept aside by a, a terrible viral pandemic. That was of a, a very stupid assumption, of course, actually, because nothing of sort happened. People were, you know, kind of shoving each other out of the queue to be first to secure advance delivery of vaccines and so on. So, but I did, I thought, well, okay, the founding of the World Health Organization in 1948, that surely was one such moment. And I went to the WHO website, which is very interesting and has a good archival historical section. And that sent me, sorry to say long-winded, to um, something called the International Sanitary Conferences of the 19th century, founded to Fight Against Cholera, which was the great, along with yellow fever, but mostly cholera, was the great, exterminator of millions at that time. And there in the records, it began in 1851. He wasn't there at the time. There in the records was a major presence of someone called Adrian Proust, Marcel Proust's father. At which point I sat bolt upright. Proust's father was known to me only as a rather ridiculous figure and the father of the greatest, most famous hypochondriac. And not that Proust wasn't ill a bit in literary history. And I got into Proust's father's life, particularly the life he spent traveling to places like the Russian-Persian border to Constantinople. He went into the hottest of hot zones of cholera. And I thought, God, this is really interesting. And the relationship between medical learning and uh, folk learning, the West and the East, all these things really came bubbling up and... uh, it ended up in 125,000
0: words. That's his last my won't. And, and that's um, going to come out in, late, in May. Well in May, in late spring. Uh, does that take into it the pandemic and issues of vaccination and 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 uh, yeah, anti uh, There's a
1: prologue and an epilogue which do that, which are reports from now. One of them is about environmental. Disaster and the threat posed by zoonotic animal-born diseases, and the end. There is a short chapter, a report from, you know, the disbelief in vaccines, the politicization of vaccination, particularly in the United States, but not just there. So yes, but the the overwhelming bulk of the book has extraordinary resonance for now. But as is sometimes, if not often, the case. Um, Without billboarding it crudely, people will feel the echoes and the resonance, I think.
0: That was an addendum question. Okay, three to go. What special skills do you have that we may know about, we may not? I think in the past, you've talked to me about your your, your cooking. Here we are in the kitchen. Um, I would still say that, actually. <laughs> I made something last night, actually, which didn't
1: turn out well. But I, I'm I'm big enough to know when that happens. Actually, it can be repaired. No, cooking is huge for me, and there is kind of world of knowledge in it, and instinct, and the giving of pleasure, and it's still a really fundamental part of my life. It's the one thing that kind of winds me down, you know, really. Um, And I knew. I mean, I I, I expect I've to told you about it. I mean, I. You know, I, I, it was being a very impractical person and someone who wouldn't know Carboretto, not that there are many left now, actually, if it fell on me from a height, you know. Um, when I started to cook in 1965 as an undergraduate on one gas ring at the end of the corridor, I instantly, I think I'd made an omelette or something, I instantly knew this was something I could do and possibly could do quite well. And um, And then I started to kind of, you know, read, particularly Elizabeth David, an incredibly great writer, cookery writer, and um, fell in rather in love with Elizabeth David. Um, so, yeah, so
0: that's still very important. Even. So I bumped into you in a, a book launch, not your book launch, just a few weeks ago in London. Can you describe to us, give us a sense as best you can, very briefly, of course, what life is like for Simon Sharma? Um, like what, do you, what, what do you do? How do you, how do you divide your time? You, you teach... You write, you make television, you give interviews, you cook. You're in the air between London and America. And
1: and this is being a grandpa. And um, Christmas, and someone in New York with my four grandchildren. Um, And writers before, um, he had no right to do this because he was kind of shocking to some of his children. But there there was a rather wonderful book by Victor Hugo called The Art La d'être grand-père, the art of being a grandpa. And um, that is just, you know, fantastic part of my life, really. Because it is all about the future, and you don't dare being kind of gloomy fatalist, or however cerebrally pessimistic you might be about history. That's, you know, the rebirth of life to kind of celebrate. And um, the most important part of my life would be dancing the tango with my nine-year-old baby granddaughter around the my daughter's kitchen
0: on, you're not pessimistic about history, are you?
1: No, I'm not. In the end, I don't know. I'm still. I may be a bit of a chump about that, but I, as, as, as we said earlier on, you know, with all the awful things that are happening and evidence of stupidity and ignorance and corruption and falsehood and so on, there's still an enormous amount of energized
0: good that can be done and is being done by human beings. Final question. It's a risky final question because so I don't really know much about what you, how you might answer this. But you mentioned earlier, very briefly, about sport and how that was going to fit into a book, perhaps. I, but yeah, it's a big um, thing for you because it, it is weirdly. I do get. I swore when I came to America
1: that I would never be interested in baseball, and I resisted going. I was living in Boston then, teaching at Harvard, and I resisted going to Fenway Park, the Red's home of the Red Sox, until a good friend of mine, a colleague, who was this very oversized um, uh, historian, brilliant historian, who'd grown up in Berlin as a Berlin Jew, um, insisted. And I thought, well, if he likes it, you know. And I remember going through this kind of rather dank, horrible smelling tunnel and out into a kind of illuminated fairyland, you know, of baseball. And I, I got very, and still I am quite a kind of, I didn't go to baseball so much because, the neither of the local teams, the Yankees or the Mets, really. I mean, I did I remember taking my son to the seventh game of the championship series in 2003, whichever it was, the Red Sox lost. And it was like Kristallnacht or something Not quite, <laughs> the amount of horrible jeering at Boston supporters in Yankee Stadium was kind of traumatic. I do love football still, you know, my dad grew up around the corner from White Hart, I didn't grow up around the corner, but he was a young man around the corner from White Hart Lane. And so, you know, I'm a classic, hopeless Jewish, you know, doomed Jewish Spurs enthusiasts. That will always and forever be part of part of my personality.
0: And my little son, who's only well, he's not even thirteen weeks, but he's doomed to follow in those footsteps because <laughs> his, his his mother is a massive Spurs fan. so He's going to join. So, you? No, I'm a, you? I'm a United fan, but I may have to be oh, semi converted right. for the sake of my son. Oh, well boy! Simon Sharma, it's been an absolute delight as it always is to talk to you. Thank you so much for giving me 20 answers to my 20 questions.